Okay, so tonight we're talking about um, song. I, we I, eventually I do want to get to the idea of song, and the idea that Rabbi Nachman talks about with song is that song connects us to either the side of holiness or the side of unholiness. This is one of the things I found very, very telling in the fact that it seemed that B'nai Noach had no music. It seemed as though what was happening with B'nai Noach was all of the people who came into B'nai Noach were laying everything down, which meant everything they knew before, all of the praise, all of the ways of prayer, all of those studying of Torah, everything was being laid down where they were being stripped clean like they had nothing. And I found that really, at first, I, I wasn't really quite sure what to make of it and everybody was trying to um, make up something and do something, 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 you know. But I realize now with hindsight looking back that this was really a very, very godly thing that happened to all of, all of you. It happened to me too when I converted. That we went through a period that was like a walk through the wilderness where Hashem was just cleaning this old stuff off. And he was giving us a clean slate where we could start all over. We could start new and fresh. And then he would add back to us the pure way of praising him, the pure way of doing things. And why was that? Because music has a very great power to connect us to either the side of holiness or the side of unholiness. There's nothing really neutral about music. It's either going to be light or dark. And this brings me to something else that I want to talk about before we even get to the whole idea of music. I want to talk about consciousness. Now when we go into the counting of the Omer, this is all about consciousness and how we approach Hashem with a consciousness, a holiness, a purity. And um, so I wrote a, a little piece today, actually today, it was the, uh, yeah, and it was something that I had talked about in a class that I taught on Sunday, but I developed it a little bit more today, and I'm hoping that all of us can together work together and develop it further. And that's why I hope that all of you are taking down my um, email address that is on the whiteboard, because I really do want your comments about this. And this is something that I know that all of you are very familiar with. All of you are familiar with the idea that there is a dualistic consciousness in the world. There are two types of thinking in the world. And some people call it East and West. The Jews call it Goisha cup or head and Yiddish cup or head. You know, it's the thinking of a Jew or a non-Jew. But when you look at this from a Torah perspective, you see a completely different criteria. Yaakov thinking and Esav thinking. It's totally different, opposite types of thinking in the world. With this you realize that people can have either of these, whether they're in the East or the West. And also, interestingly enough, it also crosses the line of Jew and non-Jew. Yet this is the mission of the Jewish people. To bring the whole world into this Yaakov kind of consciousness, this Yaakov thinking. And this is what we know because in Isaiah it says, I will set you for a covenant to the people, for a light to the nations, 
to open blind eyes, to remove a prisoner from confinement, dwellers in darkness from the dungeon. And this is found in Isaiah 42, 7. Right, and it is like equal to good and bad, but it's not quite that simple. The light is that of Hashem's presence. When it says that he's going to be a light to the nations, we're going to be a light to the nations. This is Hashem's presence, his truth. The very essence of creation, because in the beginning of creation, he said, let there be light. The world at this time, right now, is being held prisoner in the darkness. We think of the plague of darkness in Egypt, which was so tangible that people could not move. This is the dark dungeon of the Klippa, which is the prison of the mind. And Klippa means, in Hebrew, it means husk. It's a covering. And this is where we call it the Klippa, something that is separating us from the light of Hashem. And this Klippa, this prison of the mind, is a self-consciousness that the covenant people are assigned to alleviate in the world. Now, Esau was a very clever man. He seemed wise to kings who asked his advice. He seemed righteous to his father when he asked him the halacha of tithing salt, even to the extent that he seemed concerned to be meticulous in serving Hashem, to that very, very minuscule extent. He truly cared about his father's welfare. He really did. But even this, under the surface, was really motivated by selfish desire to ingratiate himself. So he was very clever at presenting a pleasing outer facade. The reality was that he was a man of the sword, a hunter, who trapped both animals with his traps and people with his manipulative words. He was someone who cared only for the moment, which he demonstrated when he sold his birthright to Yaakov for a bowl of lentils. In a later moment, he was concerned with that same birthright and blamed Yaakov for his own failure. He was a man of vengeance, vowing he would kill his brother when the opportunity arose. He was a man of this world. Now, he was a man of this world, but there's more here. The West, which was once Roman-dominated, Christian world, the Christian world was once Roman-dominated, dominated, is a dome. Asaph. This is the mindset of its progenitor, the mindset of Asaph. While Asaph was indeed a man of this world, we see religions around the world in the East and the West where people's focus is solely otherworldly. So we would say that Asaph consciousness is singular, that of only one world, physical or spiritual, stuck and unable to integrate the two which is essential for the, for the Adamic mission that is the responsibility of every child of Adam. All of us in the world. Yaakov was able to integrate both worlds, drawing down spirituality into this world, living a truly God-conscious life in the physical world. Ace of Consciousness says, we are not of this world, that our home is in heaven, so this world does not matter. It is temporal, a self-consciousness, however subtle, that says live for today, for tomorrow we die. Not caring about the future that he will not see anyway. This was exactly how he answered Yaakov's request for the sale of his birthright. I'm starving, I'm going to die anyway, so what good is my birthright? A self-consciousness 
exploits the earth and spoils everything in it, or turns a blind eye, uncaring, while others do the same thing. Yaakov consciousness is eternal and seeks the will of Hashem in this world. He understands his mission as a partner of Hashem in creation as bin Adam, a son of Adam, or a child of Adam, who also has that same responsibility of dominion of the earth that was given to Adam. Also in Adam, in Asav consciousness is the idea that redemption is some kind of escape, that it's a magical transformation that God brings about turning the world into a supernatural paradise or some other doctrinal belief in escaping third dimensional reality. Yaakov consciousness understands that redemption comes in stages, that fixing this world is the inescapable natural first step to the ultimate supernatural. Esau sees this world as hopeless. Yaakov sees unlimited possibility in working in union with Hashem. Asaph consciousness sees only the surface of things and can therefore easily miss the truth. Yaakov consciousness looks into the inner intelligence, the spiritual aspect of everything in creation. Asaph consciousness is dominated by fear. Fear of the devil, fear of the other, fear of the unknown. For centuries people attributed anything they didn't understand to the devil. This is still heard in some circles. Sometimes what people consider patriotism degenerates into xenophobia, fear of the other. And this same thinking, considered loyalty and the right to defend one's own, filters through other tribal clannish groups. Fear of the unknown can be paralyzing or it can foster hateful disdain. Fear blocks the openness necessary for change which is the very definition of redemption. It is a definitive tool of the klipa, keeping minds trapped in the darkness, unable to challenge the status quo of the fallen world. Now, all of you who are have come into B'nai Noach have already accepted this challenge and you've already, you are challenging the status quo of the world. You looked and you saw something was was missing, something was wrong. So you already stepped into the beginning of Yaakov consciousness. Now Esau consciousness would say, we only have this one lifetime. A politically expedient device of the Constantinian dominion of the world through the church. This mindset has had limited understanding of the importance of the journey of the soul in this world of its redemptive work that affects not only the individual but the cosmic soul of all mankind and of all creation itself. Yaakov consciousness seeks healing rectification on the individual and cosmic levels. Esau consciousness is dualistic, perceiving good and evil to such a degree of separateness that it creates for itself a god of good and a god of evil sometimes overtly and sometimes so subtly that it is nearly impossible to see. Yaakov consciousness actively yearns for Hashem seeking ever heightening awareness of his oneness which brings the realization that all things are ultimately for our complete benefit and it's from this consciousness that we praise Hashem 
through everything that happens to us. Clear understanding of this duality of consciousness is absolutely the first step in comprehending the process of redemption. Yaakov consciousness facilitates its coming into the world. However, we must understand that this is a battle for the mind and there is no such thing as neutrality. If we do not have the mindset of Yaakov, by default, we are in Esau consciousness. Sleeping people are in the prison of the Klippa and unwittingly facilitating its perpetuation and collaborating with the enemy. I encourage everyone to think about this and help develop this understanding further. I hope that all of you will, will write to me and, and tell me what you think about this, how we, can, how we can develop it together. Because I want this to be a joint effort that we all together, uh, individually helping each other and as a unit, together, all of us, help develop this. What do we see in ourselves and around us that falls into one or the other of these categories? How can we extricate ourselves from the dark dungeon of the cleap of the mind and better rectify our awareness into the Yaakov consciousness? This is exactly what we are doing when we enter into the counting of, of the Omer and we enter into that consciousness of the mind that takes us through the spirit. This is what I'm hoping that we will do together in the coming weeks. Right, I wouldn't have done it, but the devil made me do it. Boy, I'm telling you, that was funny at the time, you know. But uh, when you stop and you think about somebody actually saying that, it's uh, it's really not funny. <laughs> but we all laughed, didn't we? I laughed. So we dropped our music. We lost our music. We lost our songs. We lost our ability to raise our voices and praise Hashem. Now, Rebbe Nachman talks a lot about the importance of praising Hashem, the importance of singing, of of saying our prayers from our heart, and it's so it's so incredible the opportunity you have as Bnei Noach because the Jew has to pray a specific set prayer, especially Jewish men. Jewish men have to pray those specific set prayers because there is a certain type of tikkun of repair that happens in the in the um, heavens in the spiritual realm that is accomplished by these specific set prayers. These specific set prayers tweak something; they adjust something. When it's said by a minion, ten Jewish men together. When it's said even by a Jewish man by himself, there's some tikkun that happens. Now a tikkun happens in the in the spiritual realm when the person that is supposed to do that particular thing does it. Another person is not able to accomplish the tikkun that this person, the one that is supposed to do it, has to do. That's why I've been saying many times that each of us comes into the world for a purpose. I came into the world for a specific purpose. And nobody can do what I came into the world to do. You came into the world for a specific purpose. And no one else can do what you are supposed to do because you, each of us, 
plugs into the body of Adam in a specific place and we have a specific job to do it's very important for us to understand this that no one else can do they can do something maybe similar they can be, do something like a band-aid on it maybe or if they happen to be plugged into the same place maybe they can do a little bit but no one can do exactly precisely what you came into the world to do only you can do it because this was your assignment in the world I have my assignment in the world only I can do it no one else can do what I'm supposed to do and sometimes when we when we say something like this this might sound like ego but it's really not it's a statement of of fact it's a statement absolutely a fact and that tells us how unique each one of us is that each one of us was created a soul in a very unique way given very specific gifts and given an assignment to come into the world in a way in a place that no one else can do isn't that amazing I mean it's amazing how many people say and false modesty don't make a mistake false modesty is also ego and it's also a sin when people say oh I can't do that oh I can't do that not me I could never do something like that I mean they think that they're being modest they think that they're being humble but essentially what they're saying is they're discounting the thing that Hashem sent their soul into the world to do so false modesty is not a virtue modesty is a virtue but we have to understand what modesty really is so the set prayers of the prayer book are the tikkun that were given into the world for Jewish men to accomplish now Jewish women can say these prayers as well but Jewish women will not uh, accomplish the tikkun of those set prayers that a Jewish man will now a Jewish woman has her own way her own area of tikkun that is for her so non-Jewish people it is totally not necessary I, I have to tell you it is not necessary for non-Jewish people to worry about set formal prayer it's not it's not you're not accomplishing a thing if you are using it to learn about prayer if you're using it to learn how to rectify your manner of prayer that's great that's wonderful but don't make the mistake of thinking that you're accomplishing some tikkun in the heavens it's not happening however when you stand and you pray from your heart in your heart of hearts and you are praising Hashem and you are coming to him with everything that is inside of yourself you are accomplishing a lot you are accomplishing exactly what your soul came into the world to do you are allowing your spirit to rise up and join with him you're allowing your soul to come into what we call zivu into union with God and you are drawing down what says who you are and what you're supposed to do in the world and then your words are being given to you from heaven and you're speaking in them in the world and I'm utterly convinced 
utterly, utterly convinced that every single part of this earth has its own prayers that must be said in the world. When I was traveling, and I have circled the globe twice, I have walked the earth all around it twice. I've crossed the Atlantic, uh, the yeah, the Atlantic many, many times, but I've crossed the Pacific twice. And I'm telling you, when I walked the mountains of India, when I walked the fields of of Cambodia, when I went to these different places, when I went in Germany and Holland and Israel and England and all these different places, when I walked in these places as a child, as an adult, everywhere, I became convinced that every place in this world has its own particular unique prayer that needs to be said. And you know, when Hashem puts you in a place that you're born in that place, and you walk that walk that land, you walk that ground, attune yourself. Because you're put there for a reason. One person cannot say all the prayers of all the world. It is impossible. One person cannot sing all the songs of the entire earth, of all the people, of all mankind. This is the beauty of B'nai Noach that instead of having this cacophony of war and all the talk of war and the voices out of kilter and out of tune and screaming that our voices come into harmony and it's a symphony to Hashem. You know, we have this, um, it's uh, about the the voices of the animals, the voices of creation, how each each animal has its own tune in its own tone and and even the flowers and the trees you know we say and the trees will clap their hands and the and the uh, the plants of the field are going to sing everything is going to praise Hashem well everything has its own melody its own tune even the stars of the heavens have their own particular song and astronomers have now found out that that is literally literally true that there is some kind of a harmony in the nation in the so, in the stars right and so we have to ask what is our prayer what is the prayer that needs to be said right here in this place in the world here where i am in alpine texas where I am, right at the border of Mexico, what what do I need to pray here? As I walk this desert, what do I need to pray here? And you, wherever you are, wherever you are, in Minnesota or Oklahoma, or wherever you happen to be, Indiana, wherever you are, you walk the neighborhood, you walk the land around the countryside, wherever you happen to be, wherever you're traveling, and be aware that there is a specific prayer that needs to be prayed and there is a specific song even that prayers can be songs Torah that you learn can be prayers all of these things can be lifted up that we're not just taking it to ourselves that we're lifting it up to Hashem we're saying please Hashem accept this as an offering from where I am in the world 
that this is pleasing to you. This is my human soul singing out to you, Hashem, because I want zivug. I want union with you. I want to be able to come into everything that I am, everything you created me to be, and I want to draw down into this world what it means that you are one in every part of my being, that I can manifest this into the world right where I am. And that this will be drawing your light into the world, drawing your light into the world, that it will be able to permeate everything around me, everything in my domain here, as I have dominion in my part of the world. So song needs redemption, because song has fallen. Song has fallen into the klipa. And this is why you came out of where you came out of, without your songs, without your music. You were stripped of it. So Hashem could clothe you again. Oh, there is a story that Rabbi Nachman um, told, and it's called The Seven Beggars. I want to quickly go through the first part of it, because I want to talk about the music part of it. And I'll tell you how once people rejoiced. There was once a king who had an only son. The king wanted to give over his kingdom to his son during his lifetime. On the day of his son's coronation, the king made a great ball. Whenever the king makes a ball, there is great rejoicing. But now, when the king was giving over the kingdom to his son during his lifetime, the rejoicing was immense. All the royal ministers, dukes, and officials were there, and they rejoiced greatly at this feast. Everyone in the land was also pleased by this. It was a great historic event that the king was giving over the kingdom to his son during his lifetime, and there was great rejoicing. There was all sorts of entertainment at the ball, such as bands, comedians, and the like, and everything made the people rejoice. When the rejoicing reached its peak, the king stood up and said to his son, I am an expert in astrology, and I see that you are destined to lose your kingdom. When you lose power, be careful not to become depressed. You must remain joyful. If you are happy, then I will also be happy. But if you become sad, then I will still be happy, because you are no longer king. If you are not able to remain happy when you lose your royal power, then you are not fit to be a king. But if you remain happy, then I will be extremely happy. The king's son took over the kingdom with a firm hand. He appointed his own ministers, dukes, and officials, and set up his own army. The king's son was very wise, and he loved wisdom very much. He surrounded himself with great sages. Whenever anyone presented him with a wise thought, he cherished it and gave the person whatever he wanted, wealth or honor. If the person wanted wealth, he would give him wealth. If he wanted honor, he would give him honor. The king's son valued wisdom so much, he would give anything for it. All the people, therefore, became involved in academic studies. Soon the entire land was involved with these wise thoughts. Those who desired wealth did so to receive wealth from the king's son, while others did it to gain importance and honor. Since everyone was immersed in theoretical studies, the land forgot the art of war. The people became so totally involved in mental gymnastics that all they became, they became very intelligent, even the least of them. <clears throat> the people developed such high intelligence 
that the least of them would be the most intelligent person in other lands. The wise men of that land were therefore extremely intelligent. As a result of their secular studies, the wise people of the land became atheists. They convinced the king's son of their ideas, and he also became an atheist. The common people, however, did not become atheists. The arguments of the wise men were so deep and subtle that the common people could not grasp them and therefore were not harmed by these ideas. But the king's son and the wise men all became atheists. Nevertheless, the king's son had a spark of good in him. He had been born with good and had a good nature. Whenever he contemplated his situation and realized what he was doing, he would moan and sigh because he had fallen into such confused beliefs. Realizing he had fallen into error, he would moan and sigh very much, but then he would try to think logically, and he would once again become immersed in his atheistic ideas. This happened many times. When he contemplated, he would moan and sigh, but as soon as he began to think logically, his atheistic ideas would overwhelm him. One day there was a mass flight from a certain country. All the people fled, and in the course of their flight they passed through a forest. There was a boy and a girl lost. One person lost a little boy, and another lost a little girl, and they were both small children around four or five years, of old, years old. The children did not have any food. They began, they began, sorry, <clears throat> began to scream and weep because they didn't have anything to eat. Suddenly a beggar appeared. He had a sack in which he was carrying bread. The children approached him and began to follow him. He gave them some bread and they ate. How did you come to be here? They asked him. He asked them. We don't know, they replied. They were only little children. When he began to leave, they asked him to take them along. I do not want you to go with me, he replied. Meanwhile, they got a better look at him and realized that he was blind. They found this very surprising he was blind, how did he find his way? Actually, it might seem strange that they were surprised, since they were such little children, but they were very intelligent children, therefore they were surprised. The blind beggar blessed them that they should be like him, saying that they should be old like him. He left them some bread to eat, and he went on his way. The children realized that God was watching over them, and had brought them the blind beggar to give them food. When the bread was used up, they began to cry for food again. Night fell and they slept. In the morning, they did not have anything to eat. They cried and they wept. Meanwhile, another beggar came. They realized he was deaf. As he began to speak, they began to speak to him. He made gestures with his hands, indicating that he did not hear. He also gave them some bread. When he was about to leave, they asked him to take them along, but he refused. He also blessed them that they should be like him. With that, he left them some bread and went on his way. When the bread was used up, they cried out again. Another beggar appeared. He had a speech defect. When they began to speak to him, he stammered so badly they could not understand what he was saying. Could, he could understand them, but because of his stammering, they could not make out what he was saying. He also gave them bread. Before he left, he blessed them that they should be like him. He then went on his way, just as the previous ones had. Later another beggar came. He had a crooked neck. The same thing happened as before. Then another beggar came. He was a hunchback. Later a beggar without hands came. 
finally a beggar without feet. Each one of these beggars gave them bread and blessed them that they should be like him. Each one behaved in the same way. When all their bread was used up, they began to walk, hoping to come to an inhabited area. They came to a path and followed it until they came to a small town. The children came to a house, and the people had pity on them and gave them some bread. They went to another house, and the people also gave them food. They thus began to go from door to door. The children realized that things were going well for them and the people were giving them bread. The children promised each other they would always remain together. They made themselves large beggar sacks and continued going from door to door. They also attended celebrations, such as the Brit Mila and weddings. They then decided to move on and they went to the larger cities and also begged from door to door. They went to fairs where they sat together with other beggars by the fences holding their alms plate. Eventually these children became well known to all the beggars. They all knew them and, we, and were aware that they were the children who had been lost in the forest. Once there was a huge fair in one of the cities. All the beggars were there and the children were there also. Suddenly the beggars got an idea that these children would be a perfect match for one another and they should be married. As soon as a few of the beggars began to discuss it, they all agreed that it was an excellent idea and the match was made. The only problem was how to make a wedding. When they discussed the problem, they, they realized it would soon be the king's birthday and he was making a public feast. All the beggars decided to go there, and any meat and bread they could beg would be used to make the wedding. The beggars carried out their plan and went to the public feast. All the beggars went to the feast, and they begged meat and bread. They also gathered the meat and fine white bread that were left over from the feast. They then went and dug a huge pit large enough to hold 100 men. They covered it with reeds and earth. All of them entered the pit and they made a wedding for the children. The beggars brought them under the wedding canopy and were very, very joyous. The bridegroom and the bride were extremely joyous. They began to remember the kindness that God had shown them when they were first in the forest. They wept and yearned very much. And they wept and yearned for the beggars. And so these, this story is told over um, seven days. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm not going through the whole thing because I want to, to go straight to the fourth day. The fourth day of the wedding. The wedding is celebrated for seven days. And this story was told by Rebbe Nachman over a period of seven days. The fourth day, the children began to yearn for the beggar with a crooked neck. So each one of the days, one of the different beggars came. And all, of one, all at once he appeared and said, Here I am. Originally I blessed you that you should be like me. Now I'm giving you this as a wedding present. Now you think I have a crooked neck. Now this attribute that is associated with the neck is, the, is of the spirit of Bina and Tiferet. In the writings of the Ari, the neck is not seen as a, as a sphera, but a manifestation of immature mentality. And so that's why in the story the neck is crooked. So that the neck is like 
a shofar. It's crooked like a shofar, and this is this story is about music. Actually, he said, my neck is not crooked at all. Quite the contrary, I have a very straight neck. I have a beautiful neck. And this is like the neck that is described in Song of Songs. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with turrets, with upon which hang a thousand shields, the armor of mighty warriors. So the tzaddik has a wonderful neck. The neck also alludes to the temple. We thus find that when Joseph fell on Benjamin's neck, our sages state that this alluded to the destruction of the two temples. When he fell on his neck and cried. However, there are vapors in the world. They do not exhale and add to the vain vapors of the world. It is for this reason that my neck appears to be crooked. I made my neck crooked to avoid exhaling into the vapors of the world. But actually, I have a very beautiful, wonderful neck since I have a wonderful voice. Now this wonderful voice is about the spirituality of speech. It pertains to Malchut. Speech pertains to Malchut, while voice itself pertains to the sixth spirit of above Malchut. He's talking about how he has this neck so that he has this wonderful voice. And there are many sounds in the world that do not involve speech. I have a wonderful neck and voice that I can mimic any of these sounds. Remember how we were talking about earlier how the, um, the, each one of the animals, each one of the plants or trees or whatever has its own specific song that it sings to Hashem in praise to Hashem. Regarding this I have a word of the land of music. There is a land where everyone is expert in the science of music. Everyone there studies its discipline, even little children. There is no child who cannot play some kind of musical instrument. The least person in this land would be the greatest musician any place else. The wise men there, as well as the king and the musicians, are extraordinarily skilled in this art. Once the leading sages of the land sat down and each one boasted about his music. One boasted about his skill on one instrument while another boasted about his skill on another instrument. One boasted how well he played one instrument and another boasted how well he could play several instruments. Still another boasted that he was able to play all instruments. Another one boasted that he could mimic a certain musical instrument with his voice. Still another boasted that he could mimic a different instrument. Yet another boasted that he knew how to mimic many instruments. And another that he could mimic the beating of a drum so well that it sounded exactly like a drum. Another boasted that his voice could mimic the sound of artillery. I was there also. I spoke up and said to them, My voice is better than your voices. This is proof. If you are so skilled in music, let us see if you can help the two lands. Now, remember when I was talking about earlier the idea of false modesty, where you're not going to say what you can do. Well, there are times and there are ways that we say it. And this is just a story where he's explaining that he was how, how he's going to do this, how he's going to um, tell us about this.
There are two lands that are a thousand miles apart. At night, people in these two lands cannot sleep. As soon as night falls, everyone, men, women, and children, begins to wail. If a stone were placed there, it would melt out of pity for this wailing. They hear a great sound of sobbing. Because of this, all the men and women and children wail. This is true in both lands. The same sound of sobbing is heard in both lands, even though these two lands are a thousand miles apart. If you are so skilled in music, I would like to see if you can help these two lands, or if you can mimic their sound. Let's see if you can reproduce the exact sound of the wailing that is heard there. The wise men said to me, Will you bring us there? Yes, I will, I replied. And this is the beggar telling the story. They all set out and eventually came to one of the two lands. At night, when everyone began to wail, the wise men also began to wail. It was quite obvious that they could do nothing to help these people. In any case, I said to the wise men, tell me what is the source of the sobbing that is heard here. And you do know, they replied. I must certainly do. There are two birds, one male and one female. Now these two birds, this is an allusion to something very special. And this is really what all of the whole story is about, is the two birds. We're alluding to a lesson that is told in Lukate Moran, where he, where Rebbe Nachman is teaching about the rectification of song and what pure music is. The two birds allude to God, the Zer Anpin, and the Shechina, the Malchut. The concept of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is to bring Malchut, the feminine aspect of the divine, face to face with Zer Anpin, the masculine aspect of the divine, so that the unification can be complete. This is the concept of uniting those who dwell in high and those who dwell below. The Holy One, blessed be He, and His Shechina. The Holy One is called Heaven, while the Shechina is called Earth. It is written, God founded the earth with wisdom and established the heaven with understanding. It is our task to unite Heaven and Earth, the Holy One, and His Shechina. The fact that the two birds are lost to each other alludes to the exile of the Shechina. Now this is a subject that Rabbi Nachman speaks of a lot in his stories is the exile of the Shechina. And this is why the world is in such a shape as it's in. That we don't have a temple. There is a, that the Shechina, the presence of Hashem, is, eludes us. It's beyond us. So this exiled Shechina is referred to as the bird who wandered from its nest. The verse in Proverbs continues, so is a man who wanders from his place. The man in this verse is the Holy One. And this is according to the Zohar. The two birds also parallel the two cherubs on the ark. When the temple existed, the cherubs were face to face. But when it was destroyed, they were lost to each other and were back to back. The Shekhinah is also referred to as the congregation of Israel. Since it is the divine presence that rests on each and every Israelite, it is our task to bring it back to its roots, to God. The Sadi can accomplish this by throwing his voice, as we're going to see later in the story. The shofar 
He includes the sounds of the two birds. The sound from on high, the sound from down below. It thus serves to unite God and the Shekhinah. So we say that all of music, all of voice, all of the singing comes from birds. And there's a whole explanation of this in Lukate Moran that Rabbi Nachman talks about. That music, voice, the attribute of voice, the attribute of speech, all of it comes from the birds. So the two cherubs were the source of prophecy. Whenever the prophets would be um, attaining prophecy, they would focus their meditation between the two cherubs. And it's from there that they would get prophecy. As it is written, Moses heard the voice from between the two cherubs in Numbers 7.89. The voice of prophecy is also related to the shofar as it is written, Lift up your voice like a shofar in Isaiah 58.1. And it's also written, Your mouth is like a shofar in Hosea 8.1. At the revelation at Sinai, the Torah thus says, The sound of the shofar became continually stronger. Moses spoke and God answered in a voice in Exodus 19.19. The sound of the shofar indicated that all the Israelites were reaching the level of prophecy. Rashi also notes that God made Moses' voice stronger. This was done through the sound of the shofar. The two cherubs from which prophecy can denote the Holy One and his Shekhinah. As long as the ark with the cherubs stood in the temple, the relationship between the Holy One and the Shekhinah was perfect. The prophecy could exist. However, after the temple was destroyed and the ark hidden, prophecy ceased to exist. The concept of bringing together the two birds that we're talking about in the story is thus of uniting the Holy One and the Shekhinah, which is redemption. The wailing of these birds is alluded to in the verse, God cries out from on high. He screams from his holy habitation in Jeremiah 25.30. The Talmud states that he cries out like a dove. The Shekhinah is represented by Rachel, like the voice heard in Rama, lamentation, a weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are not, in Jeremiah 31. So the two birds are a perfect pair. It's alluded to where the verse refers to the Shekhinah as my dove, my twin in Song of Songs. And this indicates that God and Israel are like twin birds. Regarding their mutual loss, it is written, My beloved passed by. I sought him, but I could not find him. In Song of Songs. When the temple was destroyed, the two birds were lost to each other. When it's rebuilt, they will be reunited. So Rabbi Nachman speaks of the birds as being the source of voice and the rectification of malicious speech. Malicious speech separated the birds. And therefore, their rectification is through voice. David became the shepherd of Israel because he was able to rectify song of holiness by writing the Psalms. And this is what is so important about when we are coming into song from a holy source. Like we were saying earlier about a consciousness of Yaakov or a consciousness of Esau. What is the source of our, of our song? What is the source of our praising Hashem that is coming from one side or the other side, from the side of light or the side of darkness, holiness or unholiness? 
And this is a very important thing. As we listen to music in our lives every day, that this is something for us to think about. So these, these birds, there are two birds, one male and one female. They're, they are only such a pair of birds in the world, the only one. The female was lost and the male went to look for her. He searched for her and he searched and she searched for him. They searched for one another for a very long time until they got completely lost. When they realized they could not find one another, they decided to remain where they were and build themselves nests. The male bird made himself a nest near one of the two lands. He was right next to the land. He was not right next to the land, but he was close enough that the people of the land could hear his voice from the place that he built his nest. So he's yearning. This the whole thing about the song of these two birds is the yearning. Just like we in our song should be yearning for Hashem, crying out for him, for union with him. And the female bird built her nest near the other land and she too was close enough that they could hear her voice. At night both of these birds begin to wail in a very loud voice and each one wails for its mate. It is this sound of wailing that's heard in these two lands. When the people hear this wailing they too begin to wail. Therefore they cannot sleep. The wise men did not want, did not want to believe me. Will you bring us there? they asked. Yes, I replied, I can bring you there, but you will not be able to come there. If you come close, you will not be able to tolerate the sound of the wailing. Even here, you cannot stand it. You are forced to wail along with the others. If you were there, you would not be able to stand it at all. It is also impossible to come there by day, since it is impossible to tolerate the joy that is there. By day the birds gather around each one of the pair and they console each other and make each one extremely joyful. The birds speak words of consolation, telling the pair that there is still a possibility they will find one another. Therefore, during the day it is impossible to tolerate the great joy that exists there. The sound of the birds who make them rejoice cannot be heard from a great distance only when one is actually there. However, the sound of the pair's wailing at night can be heard at a very great distance. Because of all this, it is impossible to approach their place. Can you rectify this, they asked me. I replied, I can rectify this since I can mimic any sound. Any sound in the world with my voice, I can produce any sound exactly. Besides this, I can throw my voice so that no sound is heard here, but a sound is heard at a distance. I can therefore throw the voice of the female bird and make it reach the place of the male bird, and also throw the voice of the male bird and make it reach the place of the female bird. By doing this, I will be able to bring them together. Through this, everything will be rectified. When he saw that they did not believe him, the beggar, he took them into the forest, and they heard the sound of a door being opened and then closed and locked with a bolt. They actually heard the click of the bolt. Then they heard a gun being shot and a dog being sent to retrieve the quarry, the dog thrashing around and dragging himself in the snow. The wise men heard all this, but they did not see a thing. They also did not hear any sound whatsoever coming from me. Still, I was the one who was projecting these sounds, and this is why they heard them. 
They realized I could accurately produce any sound and also through my voice. Therefore, I could rectify anything. Therefore, I have the last word of that land, that I have the wonderful voice and I can mimic any sound in the world. Not as a wedding, now as a wedding present, I am giving it to you, speaking to the children, so that you can be like me. And there was great joy and great rejoicing. So when he was saying that he could mimic any sound, what was he doing? He could mimic any sound in the world, thus elevating every sound according to its time and place. That every sound needs to be elevated so that it is praise to Hashem. And this is what we mean when we say the trees of the field clap their hands. This is also related to the concept of sounding the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. The shofar includes every sound in the world. As the Zohar says, all sounds on high are included in the shofar. The shofar is directed at both birds, alluding to God and Israel. The shofar awakens the Israelites and motivates them to repent, saying to them, Awake you who sleep! This is the concept of, Shall a shofar be sounded and the people not tremble? In Amos, Amos. The shofar also serves to remind God to have mercy on us. It recalls the binding of Isaac on the altar and causes God to remember his merit for us. Thus the shofar tends to bring Israel to God and God to Israel. Symbolically, then, it reunites these two birds. Now the tzaddik, when he was talking about throwing his voice, the tzaddik can bring God and the Shekhinah together by throwing his voice. One way of doing this is by clothing his lessons in stories. This is the way that Rabbi Nachman um, told his stories, uh, told his lessons. He would clothe them in stories so that it was hidden. He was selling it in a hidden way. And it's very, very lovely that you can have Rabbi Nachman's stories. You can tell them to a child, or you can get these very deep, wonderful messages through them. So the message is not heard immediately, but when it reaches the person for whom it is intended, then it is uncloaked, and the person understands it perfectly. So telling, one's, telling stories is like throwing one's voice. The tzaddik can also clothe his prayers in stories. You can, take, you can take the Torah that you learn and you can turn that into prayer. You can take your prayers and you can turn them into songs. And all of these things are lovely ways of throwing your voice, of clo cloaking them in something else. And it's an offering up of these things to Hashem. It's offering up all of these things of voice and it's rectifying song. It's rectifying the quality of voice in the world that has been abused. And on this note, I want to say one other thing, is that a lot of times B'nai Noach think, some B'nai Noach have, have the opinion that they must say their prayers in Hebrew. They must learn Hebrew. They must say their prayers in Hebrew. But I have to ask you a question. Is there any language in the world in which Hashem name has not been blasphemed so this is my opinion that this is another aspect of B'nai Noach that is so beautiful that Hashem's name should be praised in every language of the world that every language in the world should have songs of pure songs of praise to him 
that should be a rectification of all of that blasphemy that has happened in that language that every language of the world should be redeemed this way and this is exactly what B'nai Noach are all about that B'nai Noach have this opportunity that this is the function of B'nai Noach to do something that, that the Jewish people well the Jewish people that are in the lands of course can do this but who better than the people that this is your native language so you don't have to do this praising Hashem necessarily in Hebrew it is fine if you want to but Hashem is praised in Hebrew by the Jewish people and Hashem should be praised in every language of the world and this is also a rectification of song so like I said I hope to hear from you about all of the things we talked about tonight and I'm going to um, close the class now. I see that everybody is in the class waiting for Rabbi Baxt to begin his class. And thank you for coming into the class. And like I told you at the beginning, there will be no class next week because I'm going to be out of town. But following that, we're going to begin the um, preparing for the classes on the spirit and how to um, bring ourselves into that awareness each week. So thank you for your attendance.